Welcome to IntelliCast, powered by Skip. But with that, I'd very much like to introduce our session speaker, uh, Helmuth Ludwig. Helmuth Ludwig was Chief Information Officer at Siemens until December 2019. He has worked at Siemens for nearly 30 years in various capacities in Germany and abroad, including serving as president of PLM Software and CEO of the Siemens industry sector in North America. He completed a degree in engineering at the Karlsruhe Institute of Technology before earning a doctorate at Christian Albrechts University at Kiel, Germany. He also holds a master's of business administration degree from the University of Chicago. Helmuth teaches uh, as Professor of Practice for Strategy and Entrepreneurship at Edwin L. Cox School of Business, Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Texas, and is Chair of the Board of the Circle International MA. He is also a member of the Board for Hitachi Limited Tokyo. Dr. Ludwig will be interviewed by Cam Mackey of SKIP. Thanks again for joining. Now over to Cam and Dr. Ludwig. Thanks so Thank much, Alexandria, for the nice introduction. Thank you. Helmuth, welcome to uh, Eurosummit. Really uh, delighted to have you with us here today. And, and I've got to say that that bio really is is very impressive. Um, so thank you for being so generous with your time. No, I'm really happy to be here. I think you have a fantastic lineup and I will listen in several of the presentations. So thank you very much for having me. Looking forward to it. Excellent. So, so you know, one thing that Alexandria said when she introduced you really resonated um, You've spent a lot of your career in, in one way or another touching on the intersection of digital transformation and strategy. Now, maybe you know, could you start by you know, kind of talking us through that career and how you've seen digital transformation change and evolve? Yeah, very good question. So actually this, this goes very much along with uh, many things that happen in our company. Um, when, when I joined 30 years ago and then uh, some years later, I started to run my first PL. It was kind of okay to say, well, the last five years we grew with 5% and now we are aggressive. We will grow the next five years with 6%. So kind of being in a linear world. Well, the big problem is that um, the linear world is over. Uh, it's, wherever we look, change is really exponential. And the big problem with this exponential change is that uh, at the beginning, it looks pretty similar. And then it really, really takes off. And so coming to your question, so this is what we are seeing in each and every of our businesses um, at my former company, Siemens, but also in companies I'm currently involved with, where, where the traditional business is more and more driven by digital change, by value creation for our customers through, through digital impact. And now, you never can really um, foresee the future, but you actually can do something about it. And uh, so what, what we did in Siemens was we, we created, um, first of all, we looked at certain megatrends. So we, we said, what's, what's changing in the environment? And so not, not, you know, how is the next product generation coming up? But really outside in, what's changing there? What are the real megatrends that are happening? For example, climate change, globalization, um, urbanization, more and more people living in cities had an enormous impact of many of our businesses in healthcare, but also in automation. How do you bring products at the end to, to our customers? 
and also demographic change. Now, and then many regions of the world is significantly aging population, and we have seen this year uh, which kind of impact this, this has to, to uh, every business practically. And later on, we added a trend which we call digitalization. And um, looking at those trends, um, you find today every practically every annual report of every company has these trends somewhere in. The question is not to write these trends down. The question is, how do you translate those into something actionable? And what we did, and that's about 15, 20 years ago, we started to describe for each of our business a picture of the future. How does this business look in 20 to 25 years? And again, you can't predict the future, but it's surprising when we look at these pictures we did 20 years ago, we, we did not always hit the tipping point well. So when exactly the change was happening, but actually we identified trends in a very, very clear way. And maybe we can talk later on about this, you know, how it influenced several of our businesses. And, and there it's, it's really related to when we acquired a software company. But do you want me to go into this right now or what do you prefer? No, no, I, I, I think that that's powerful. So let me, let me reflect back. And so, you know, you mentioned something really interesting in a moment, a moment ago, Helmuth, that, that you, know, you, you know, as product life cycles are getting shorter, for example, that you needed to look longer term. And so there's this tension there between what we hear around digital transformation changes all the time, you know, every day is different. And, it, and it's interesting that, that, you know, you really went towards, you know, what are the long-term trends and talked about a 20 to 25 year strategy. So may, maybe, you know, talk us through a little bit about having that long-term, I think you use the, the phrase picture of the future. How does that actually start to drive decisions? You know, whether it's around M and A, um, you know, organic growth, you know, even you know, businesses to exit. You know, how do you yeah, actually yeah. take that that vision yeah. and 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 put it into action? No, very much. So just just think of let let's step back for a moment. Which kind of businesses were we in at the time? This was telecommunications, automotive supply, energy, energy generation, energy distribution, transmission, um, industrial business, healthcare business. And um, so what we then said, look, these mega trends influence actually all of those businesses in a very different way. So there's no point in having this picture of the future for Siemens, but we want to do this business by business. And uh, let me give you an example on energy. And energy at the time we were in nuclear, we were in steam turbines and we were in gas turbines. Steam turbines are a lot used for coal-powered fossil stations. And, and nuclear um, was, at this time, already quite in a discussion, is this really the future, which might come up again. But the decision we took looking at climate change was something is missing in this puzzle. There was no renewable. There was no solar. There was no wind. So the, then the next question is, after you have decided that there will be significant pockets of growth in renewables, you have to make a decision for your company. If you want to get in there, can you add it on? Or do you have to get out of something because you have to refocus? And we decided, for example, to go out of nuclear. And then we decided to go into wind energy. The next question then is, can you build it up yourself? Or are there certain competencies that are, take you very long to build up? You can do it with, with the balance sheet of Siemens. You can build up many competencies. But if you want to become a market leader and you had no, no other ambition than being the market leader, you, you have to be fast. So we acquired a relatively small company in, in Denmark called Bonus Energy, 
And this became the hub for our wind energy business. And if, if you think back, bonus energy we acquired in 2004, we invested heavily in organic growth. We, we added significant R&D competence and capacity. We added several factories. And then in 2017, we acquired Siemens majority of Gamesa. And this became Siemens Gamesa. And Siemens Gamesa today is the largest producer of wind energy equipment worldwide. So this was really the storyline on the energy side. If you look at healthcare, it's an interesting story too, because we realized it's moving more and more, and, and this is as current as it can be, to a more individualized uh, treatment, but all the diagnostics. And now we looked at our portfolio and we saw we are leaders in uh, MRs and, and magnetic resonance and, and computer tomographs and, and normal x-rays. What's missing in this picture was the whole in vitro diagnostics. So where you analyze fluids and bringing those two worlds together was a requirement to get into more individualized diagnostics and treatment. And uh, so we acquired the uh, 2006, several in vitro diagnostics companies brought those together. And we just actually closed a major acquisition, $16 billion um, acquisition, this variant healthcare for, for cancer treatment. And, and so the whole picture kept on developing going forward. And now closer to home, exactly where the area where, where I was acting in was the industrial space. And, and this was really interesting because we had gotten leadership in the factory floor. A, a Siemens product was called Zematic. It's really whenever you go into an automotive factory, all the, automo all the automation equipment, um, you, you would have a very high probability to see the Siemens name again and again and again, and actually cross the world. So Mark, Siemens is market leader there. Great position to be in. We had created a concept, totally integrated automation. So we were, we were really in a position of strengths, market share growing almost one percentage point every year. It's exactly the business you like. And we were then at a customer and the customer shocked us because he said, look, I don't care anymore about the automation, maybe for the next two, three, four years, the next investment. But what I'm really looking forward to is when everything becomes integrated, my designer designed something you know, sitting there in, in Detroit, making a change to a, to a product design and knowing what it means in the manufacturing facilities at this time in Rüsselsheim and Shanghai. So this is what I want. I want the digital threat going all through. And uh, we were going home and said, well, this vision is great. And it became part of our picture of the future. Mm -hmm. And then came the next morning, the awakening, because we couldn't do it. There was no way we would have been able to create the digital threat if we wouldn't have been early stage in the tool provision where really the idea generation happens, where the design happens. We would be at the commodity end. And, and this was a bad awakening, honestly. This was, this was, the question was, well, do we have to go out of this business at some point in time? Um, and we took the other direction. We acquired then this competence. We, we clearly looked at our organic potential and we realized it would take us not to develop the products that long, but to be able to position these products in the market. This kind of software, this is design software, CAD software, or product lifecycle management, where you manage all the different data coming from your product designs and to, to create repeatability. And we realized we probably could with adequate investment 
develop these products, but to bring them in the market that's a really relevant would take at least one and a half, if not two decades. So that was not an alternative. And then we looked at acquisitions and acquired a company called UGS, Unigraphics, headquartered, uh, was an EDS offspring, so headquartered in Texas and in Plano. And, um, and coming back to your starting question, this is actually how I got involved and I ran the company during the first three years, bringing the different cultures of Siemens and Siemens, as we called it then, Siemens PLM software together. So these, these pictures of the future were not there just looking at the wall and saying, oh, this looks great. But they were real drivers for radical change inside our company. Yeah, and that's, I mean, it, it's fascinating because I think so often we hear about megatrends and we think, you know, you know climate change, urbanization, um, and, and often you don't hear this whole concept of, of, you know, as you say, the digital thread, right? Where, you know, people don't want to buy a component, they want really an end-to-end -end digital offering. And the implications on the business model are huge. Um, now, so are, are tools like, you know, Porter's Five Forces, which is, which is, you know, really foundational to how competitive intelligence and strategy professionals think, you know, what role do frameworks like, you know, Five Forces play in those types of decisions where markets are really just changing how they operate? Yeah, no, no, very, very good question. So we, we looked at, or we use different frameworks, sometimes explicitly, sometimes implicitly. Let, let, me, let me take Porter's Five Forces. Um, one of our business, which was growing very nicely, was the automotive supply part business. And um, when you look there at Porter's Five Forces, number one is there was a lot of competition, direct competition in this field. And um, pretty tough competition, Bosch as, as one company, Continental as another, and, and other companies in, in their um, sort of Japanese, very strong Japanese competitors. Um, but this was not the worry. The worry was a different one. Um, number one is um, the power of our customers. Because it was the moment, and, and we had an entity which was uh, where we announced the bottom line results publicly. And the moment where you hit a certain profitability level, you could bet the next morning you had a call from the purchasing people at Volkswagen, at Daimler, or somewhere saying, hey, we got to talk. So there was a certain level of, there was kind of a glass ceiling of profitability where, you, where, you, where it was very hard to cross. The other part, which we had at this time already in the picture, we didn't really know exactly again when the tipping point happen, would happen, but we knew we were, for example, leaders in, in um, combustion engines, specifically diesel engine injection. And, and we knew there will be a substitution effect. So at some point in time, we knew there, there will be a movement to more sustainable um, mobility, which will have an impact on, on what, what we are producing. Uh, we had new entrants, uh, especially coming from Asia that uh, worked with very different cost structures. And, um, so, and, and then last but not least, even the supplier power, especially going, although there we saw the digitalization, so more and more electronics coming in, and the question was, how does the profit pools potentially move between the automotive part supplier and the supplier of key components? So, so it was really, if, if you think it through, um, while the business at first sight, looking at the numbers, which described the past, was very attractive, looking into the future with an analysis like four or five forces, uh, it was really a worrisome picture. 
uh, it was a perfect storm. And so we decided at the height of the business, you know, nice growth rate, relatively okay profitability, not the perfect one, again, this glass ceiling, but uh, a very attractive business, and we decided to sell it. Uh, hard to understand for, for some of the team members that worked very hard to make this business so successful, but it then became part of the Continental Group. We, we were thinking about an IPO. Uh, at the end, it was sold because Conti made a very attractive offer, and, and it became one of the core pieces of, of Conti, one of the largest um, automotive supply uh, providers today. But it made it possible to have a very significant cash inflow, which then paid for acquisitions in in vitro diagnostic and healthcare and also on the software field. And, and, and yeah, I, I remember when that, when that deal was announced that, that uh, probably you know, overstating that it was controversial, but, but yeah, you, you absolutely seem and sold from a position of strength, um, which, you know, you got a good chunk of change from Continental. So uh, I think history will judge that, that sale very positively. Um, you said, you know, you were talking a, a little bit ago about the digital thread. And also this came up when you were talking about the automotive business, this, this whole notion of, you know, the value proposition from what customers want, and then, you know, moving away from product or component where your, your profitability is, is more fragile more towards a solution. And as, you know, as, as we've talked earlier, that solution is often digitally enabled. Um, but when you do that, especially for a company that might bring a more um, product-based mindset, when you're having a digital solution, you have a whole different set of risks that, that, that come up. Anything, you know, data security, obviously, but also you could be competing against the Googles and Microsoft and Amazons of the world. So, you know, in that kind of shift, when your value proposition really is changing from commodity towards solution or product towards solution, you know, what are some of the things from a strategic threat or blind spot perspective to be aware of, or what were some of the things that would keep you up at night? Yeah, I would say it's, um, it's probably three areas that you have to look at. Uh, number one is um, different business models have very often also very different competence environment, which creates a very, or which is based on a very different culture. So culture is an element. Um, I think um, there's a second critical element here is you have to really be very sensitive to select the areas you want to be in. Uh, you can't be uh, everything for everyone. And um, you have to build on a position of strength. So where do you have certain specific domain know-how that is very hard for others to copy? What is your defensibility in, in, in this area? And, and I think third, you have to be aware you never go alone. You never walk alone. Um, especially in digital models, um, partnerships are critical. And sometimes also the willingness to um, practically give IP away to open up, which can create enormous opportunity, but it's, it's a hurdle because you're, you feel like, you know, this is mine. And now you, you put it into a generally available um, pool of, of IP. So let me, let me walk you through those three things. Let's start with culture. When we um, acquired Unigraphics, we said, you know what? We are a software company. Siemens at the time, we still were in telecommunications. When we counted all the software engineers inside the company, Siemens had about the same amount of software engineers at Microsoft. 
Alex, this is not a software company. What's a software company? When we did a first smaller acquisition in Italy before we acquired UGS, we already realized, careful, software business is not only designing software, coding software, but it's a whole go-to-market structure which really matters. And so we were sensitive to it. Um, but still, we believed, you know, we are software, we know how software is written, so let's, let's integrate this really fast because we want to have these synergies. We, we all promised to our board to, to materialize. And um, so when we then, um, after the closing, really interacted deeply with, with the new company, with the new partners in Siemens, we had to realize that the big difference was actually surprisingly to us, very little on the pure development side. While we kept the development uh, very much focused and there were agile structures, which we did not have that much exposed in Siemens yet or trained in Siemens yet. Um, many of the processes as this was enterprise software used in an engineering environment with very high quality expectations. They, the processes actually were surprisingly similar. So we were, we could take this off harmonization of processes, understanding, mutual understanding really worked worked extremely well. All the back office part was easy. The real problem was marketing and sales because we had to realize it's a very different animal. If you go to a customer and you sell automation equipment and you promise one millisecond reaction time. So it's a product clearly defined um, elements in there where the customer can say, this is not one millisecond, you know, the, the requirement was X and now I'm, I'm getting Y. So very clearly understood and measurable. Right. Or selling enterprise software and enterprise software sells something immaterial and you go to your customer and you have say, you say, well, you can, we have seen other customers reducing time to market by 30 or in your industry, even 40 or 50%. Right. But we don't know if you can do it because it's your process. But we know we have great tools. Can you promise? No, we can't because then we can't recognize revenue. So we're not promising anything. Kind of a strange situation to be in, but this is how software business happens. You need very different people to be able to do this. So this different culture, and we actually kept it until today. So our go-to market um, in the software business still has a very high level of independence. And we have independent software entities worldwide that focus on the software business. So that, that's the, the, the cultural part. Mm -hmm. um, when, when, we, when we then go, go further, you know, the um, bringing, bringing together the, the different um, approaches is, can, can be really, really challenging. And uh, maybe, maybe you want to jump in or should I go further on? No, no, I, I, I would you, actually... I see you jumping in. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm going to jump in if that's okay, Helmut. So, so yes. I... I I love that you know you're talking about you know some of the back office processes and those were, you know, you know killing all the six sigma people out there. Those were the ones that were relatively easy. It was it was the go to market. Now, this issue of culture is really important to the Skip community because so much of what competitive intelligence and strategy needs to be successful is an organization that really values intelligence. You know, you can call it data driven decision making, but just you know not making strategic decisions based on gut and conventional wisdom. Now, um, any thoughts on, on that type of cultural attribute where, you know, paying attention to data, um, thoughtful analysis versus, um, you know, inertia and the way we've always done it, because that's a big mindset shift. 
Yeah, so maybe let me let me take there one example where we saw this um, really to the extreme. Siemens is, is a market leader and um, provider of mobility equipment, uh, trains, but also um, the track control. And um, one of our customers is the Renfe in Spain. Renfe is the uh, operator of the trains, for example, well, the whole network, but especially, for example, one of their, their largest uh, connection is between Barcelona and Madrid. The competition they have is a, is a um, airlift between Barcelona and Madrid, so flying. Why do people fly this relatively short distance? Because the trains were never on time. And at least flying gave you an idea when you arrive. Trains, not necessarily. And uh, this was the main issue that, that Renfe had. And when we sat down together, they said, look, can you provide, instead of just providing a train and equipment, can you provide on-time performance? Can we make a change in the contract? We want to promise our customers, so the train users, if the train is 15 minutes late, you get your money back. And you know what, Mr. Siemens? We want you to be responsible for it. You can imagine this was not the natural business type and um, business model we, we were in and we liked. Having said though, some intelligent people inside the company took this on and said, well, you know, if we have access to all the data, we are actually in a prime position to define our maintenance schedules much better than we do today. And by this, we could actually guarantee a much higher availability and at the end on-time performance. So we took the risk and we went into this contract based on on-time performance. And today what has happened is 40% of the people flying between Barcelona and Madrid are now taking the train. The train is reliable, the train is on-time. And uh, the fun part is Renfe wins because the capacity utilization went up significantly. We win because our contract wasn't cheap. Um, we actually have pretty high profitability in this contract. Um, and um, we are able to guarantee this on-time performance for our operator. A similar, in, in, in Russia, we had a similar discussion where instead of buying X number of trains, they could buy X minus one and still have the same availability because we didn't sell purely trains, but we sell sold trains, including a predictive maintenance concept based on the data. Always, of course, you really have to make sure that you actually do have access to all the relevant data you need for your decision-making process. But it's, it's, uh, it's, it's really amazing, you know, how the team there moved from a business model of just selling equipment to outcome-based business model. And that's, I mean, that's a huge shift. And I love that you, you know, talked about the, the rail business, which, you know, I, I never would have thought in all my years that, that, you know, power by hour, but for rail. So that's, uh, that, that's fascinating. Um, and so I, I've got to believe, you know, we, we've talked a little bit about the sales marketing implications of that, uh, you know, on the software side um, of that kind of shift, um, you know, from a management perspective, you know, in thinking about, you know, what kind of information, intelligence and insights do you want from whether it's your strategy group, your market or competitive intelligence group, you know, you, you have to adjust to that very different type of model, 
um, you know, what type of insights are helpful in thinking in supporting management to be successful to deliver profits when shifting business models in the ways that you've been outlining in the last few moments? Yeah, so, so we, we, we think of this in seasons. When, when you, and, and I like the comparison of Formula One. In Formula One, you run the current season, and then what happens at the end? They change you the rules, and next season has different rules. And that's really how we play in business. Now, what you have to do is you have to balance both. You have to balance running the current season successfully, and at the same time, preparing for the next. Now, what does that mean for competitive intelligence? Number one is you still have to look at your current competitors. You know, just saying, oh, I don't care about them anymore just doesn't work because many of your customers compare your delivery to your direct traditional competitor. So you still have to run the current season successfully, understanding the current competitive landscape. Nothing goes away from there. Having said so, it's not enough because the question is, how do you spot the next season and who are your potential future competitors? So what, what we do there, we, we look very much for fast growing companies, even if they're small, but if they're small and grow is 50%, they will be big very soon. So we, we look at high growth companies that solve the customer's problem in slightly a different way. So the moment where we see there's somebody growing significantly and has somehow a different approach, that's something we deeply want to understand. Is this a potential strong competitor going forward? Or is this just an anomaly, which we don't have to worry about? But this is hard to, to uh, understand sometimes, especially early stage. So you need a lot of information around this. Number two, we work intensively with, uh, with startup companies. And uh, the, the reason is there, when you are, especially when you're market leader, you always have a history. You walk around with a backpack. You cannot avoid it. And, uh, and you're proud of what you have achieved, and, and you should be. But it, you always kind of um, looking, you know, the, the, you, you focus on the current a little bit. It's just natural. And, and I like Andy Grove from Intel who said, only the paranoid survive. So you, <laughs> you have to have the right mix between being proud of what you did and, and celebrating this, but at the same time, understanding that there are different approaches. And their startups very often help us because they don't have this history. They don't have to, they don't have this technical debt running around. They are really addressing this opportunity in a new way, in a um, sometimes non-successful way. And um, that's okay too. But, um, but some of them come up with ideas where you say, well, this is really interesting. And potentially that's something how we could do this in the future or we acquire as a software company or if it's a software company, it can be very, very different companies in different areas that are without this technical debt that's natural in a market leader. That, that, that's fascinating. And I like the, the notion there of, of you say operating in different seasons, right? So for, for the you know, competitive intelligence professional, it's, monitoring you know the competitors that you know about but it's also looking um for future competitors and i love how you're talking about it very much from the customer perspective you know who can offer you know solve that problem uh or a different related problem even if it's using a different technology or process now you know what what do tools and frameworks helmets like whether it's scenario planning or war gaming you know uh, or even foresight you know you mentioned a little bit you know with the megatrends obviously at the beginning you know how have they helped siemens prepare 
for, for you know, disruptions, maybe not 20 years out in the megatrends, but something maybe a little bit shorter term? How have those types of frameworks yeah, yeah, no, been used? Absolutely. And, and they, they are part of each, each business. And I think frameworks are good in two directions. Number one, usually they help you to be messy, meaning you're, you're mutually exclusive and collectively exhaustive. So you have covered your basis. And um, by, by using a framework, it helps you, let's, let's take the Porter Five Forces, which we did before very quickly for the automotive supply business. It helps you understand, wow, where is the potential risk coming up? Or what is the current situation? Why is this industry not as profitable as we believe it should be? So what, what are the dynamics? And then of course you wanna know how do the dynamics change over time? So you can make certain hypotheses and you, you can play this through in kind of a scenario model. So, so number one is uh, I think it, they, they help you to, to get your analysis straight. But they also help you and it's at least as important to communicate because it, it shows also to the listener who might have not gone himself or herself through the analysis it helps to understand the logical steps that you took to get to that conclusion. So that's why, why I very much like uh, strategic frameworks. Which ones to be used? We talked about picture of the future. Um, I personally uh, use regularly value cost framework. You know, which kind of value creation do I have at a customer? How do I make, uh, make sure that I capture my fair, sometimes hopefully unfair share? And last but not least, what are the cost drivers do I have an opportunity to be actually in a, in a cost position that there's enough margin between uh, the willingness to pay of our customers and, and what I can, can provide? So that's a, it's a very, very helpful framework that we use regularly, um, which also connects back on something you asked before, which areas and what, how do you worry about the uh, digital natives? Yeah. And you really have to be very selective where do you have a strong position because of your domain knowledge which helps you identify what are the real value creators at your customers. Now take the Renfe example. We knew their core topic was on-time performance. And we knew it because we were in daily discussion with them. So, so we could develop on, on this and we could not only, it was not the high level PowerPoint, but we could translate this in something actionable with clearly defining which data do we need to increase the, or to improve the maintenance schedules to really generate a higher level of on-time performance. So this whole translation requires deep domain knowledge in what can be done. You know, you, you don't learn this from one day to the other. And these are the areas which, which we look for. So and when you go back value cost framework, it helps you to start always with the understanding what's the value creation at your customer side. Yeah, and, and I'm I'm really glad you brought up data. That's you know no surprise. Something that that you know our members are excited to work with, overwhelmed by the volume, and and always curious for perspective on, especially someone from your level. So again, as a reminder, you know, you, you had the perspective as the global CIO of Siemens, where you know I, I can't even imagine how many you know billions of I guess zettabytes is the is the term you know that that were within the organization kind of from the BI perspective let alone external to the organization so when you have this huge amount of data and and you know everything that we read and know says that there are going to be hidden insights in there we, we all know that you know AI and machine learning and things like that can can help us in, in distilling insights and 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 finding trends 
Um, any thoughts on that, again, from an executive perspective of how that can help drive strategy and, and strategic decisions? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cam, you remember when we spoke about the software engineers and Siemens? Yeah. Now, of course, there was some value in, in knowing how to code software, but it was just a small piece of the puzzle. Hmm. And I think that's true with data too. Uh, I, just having a lot of data doesn't get you anywhere. Yeah. At the end of the day, you have to be hypothesis driven. You have to understand which kind of value creation can you generate with data. And then of course you do need data. So it's not that you don't need it, but just having um, terabyte of data laying around is no value at all. Um, you have to be able to, to, to really understand which kind of problem you try to solve. And we call this uh, in Siemens democratization of artificial intelligence. Sounds like a great term. What it really means is something very fundamental and, uh, and um, driving what, what I was referring to. Number one is you have to always start with a problem you want to solve. If again there, you can only start there with deep domain knowledge. You know, how do you optimize the gas turbine? How do you analyze medical images to identify uh, in, in masses to identify um, potential um, cancer um, activities and then the treatment for this? Or how do you, how do you identify um, certain quality of products early on so you don't have to go through all the steps of, of um, controlling those in, in your manufacturing facility and still get the same quality output? Mm -hmm. And um, so you start with this element. Have you done this? The next step is you need to have people that lead the members of the team with a domain knowledge through a process. And in artificial intelligence, it always has to be an agile process, meaning very, very fast feedback loops, uh, quick testing, is this the outcome we want to get to? But you need a certain process know-how. And, and you need to know how, you know, which kind of um, approaches of machine learning are relevant for this specific challenge we are facing. And last but not least, you need, you need a platform. You need a platform of, of certain IT tools or AI tools that can be reused. Because if you go back value cost framework, you know, you might create a lot of value. If your cost goes even higher, nobody makes money in this. So at the end of the day, you want to be also financially be successful. And um, so why do we call this democratization of AI? Because we bring all the parties together, but we start with a problem and then we go through with the process knowledge and the technology platforms that we're using to create the, the economies of scale and scope. Yeah, excellent. So, so not using data in search of a problem, um, and <laughs> which happens sometimes. Um, it, it's tempting. We have the answer. Do you have the problem? <laughs> right, right. Ex exactly. That, that'll be a million dollars. We got about a minute left here, Helmuth, and and you know again we're incredibly appreciative for for you joining us today, and I would just you know be curious for any closing thoughts, advice you might give to this community. So we are in strategy departments, we're in marketing departments. Sometimes we report to the CEO, but you know really what we're trying to do is is you know find you know early warnings externally is to make sense of volumes of data and give our companies a competitive edge help them grow faster help them you know identify that next risk you know what do you need from folks in these types of roles in order for you to help lead you know enterprises like Siemens and on the boards that you're on to be successful 
Um, we always try to define it in, in, in two ways. On one hand, you need certain aspiration. Our chairman at Siemens, um, Hagerman Snabe, calls it dreams. He even has, has published a book, Dreams and Details, when I come to the details. But the number one is, you know, where do you want to get? Because we, we live in a world where linear planning, as we started our discussion today, is probably not very relevant. So, so you have to understand, you know, is, is where do you want to go with the company? To which radical change does the environment go? And I believe their competitive intelligence, market intelligence is critical to understand the direction. Megatrends, picture of the future, where do you go? How does this business change over time? And after you have defined this, you also have to define what are the critical details you absolutely have to take care of. To give you the example, when we acquired the software company, uh, we had several analysts that told us you know what? Siemens will destroy this business in less than a year. Why? Because they believe people do not, the cultures are so different, they will not be able to come together. So taking care of the new members of the team, understanding their culture and giving them the necessary freedom to also develop themselves in this new environment was absolutely critical. I mentioned the go-to-market and the specifics we defined there, which was not the traditional Siemens approach we usually took, we purposefully did this differently here. And I think this was absolutely critical. How did we come to this conclusion? Well, by listening, a lot of listening. Personally, I was the first three months, I was really in every major place where we, where we had uh, now this as a new team member sitting and not only listening in the boardroom meetings, but also at the night at the bar and listening, you know, what really matters for them in their head. Why do they, they're risk takers, say they have a different style. That's number one. But number two was we looked at, I think, 30, 40 different acquisitions of hardware and software companies and which ones worked and which ones didn't. And the ones that didn't work were the ones which hacked the new partner too much and didn't give the necessary freedom to be able to do this. But it was necessary from a leadership perspective to really take care of this crucial detail. You cannot be in every detail, then you're a micromanager but you can be a micro leader understanding what is a crucial detail. And there I believe competitive and market intelligence are critical to give this information to the leadership to make the right decisions. Helmuth, thank you. I think that's a perfect place for us to wrap up. On behalf of the you know, community here today in the Skip board, I want to thank you for being so generous with your time and expertise, Helmuth. Thank you. It was, was my pleasure, Ken. Always good seeing you again. Yeah, All you the too, best to friend. everyone and uh, enjoy your conference. Looking forward to listening to the other presentations. Mm -hmm.